reading from the book of Genesis. The servant said to Laban, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become wealthy. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female slaves, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and he has given him all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I live, but you shall go to my father's house, to my kindred, and get a wife for my son. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you will only make successful the way I am going, I am standing here by the spring of water. Let the young woman who comes out to draw, to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw from your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew. I said to her, Please, let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will also water your camels. So I drank, and she also watered the camels. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord, and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to obtain the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you will deal loyally and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, so that I may turn either to the right hand or to the left. And they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will. So they sent away their sister Rebecca and her nurse along with Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of myriads. May your offspring gain possession of the gates of their foes. Then Rebecca and her maids rose up, mounted the camels, and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebecca and went his way. Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahai Roy and was settled in the Negev. Isaac went out in the evening to walk in the field, and looking up, he saw camels coming. And Rebekah looked up, and when she saw Isaac, she slipped quickly from the camel and said to the servant, Who is the man over there walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church.
For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer time to do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good that dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inmost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church.
children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another, We play the food for you, and you did not dance. We wail, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The Gospel of the Lord. It's, it's in three parts. 
is Jesus describing how the people have rejected him as well as John the Baptist and the message that they're presenting. And Jesus describes the people as crippled uh, children. So we have this very strange uh, sentence in this gospel. We, play, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not mourn. John the Baptist's message was the wailing one, I believe. Uh, and the, the gospel says that he came not eating or drinking, and yet they rejected him as though he were someone with a demon. And then Jesus comes, eating and drinking, and they think he's a glutton and a drunkard. And he uh, keeps company with tax collectors, with other people who are outcasts. Uh, it's, I think it's important for us to see in this that the message of the gospel can take two extreme forms. It can be very harsh, and it can sound very harsh, like John the Baptist's message. But it can also have this kind of radical inclusion that we hear in Jesus' message. And there's a bit of truth in both. The one calling us to repentance, to see what's done right in our lives, and how we're missing the mark. And the other saying, y'all come. Everybody is welcome. The kingdom of God is for all. The second section, and these don't necessarily sound like they're connected, but I think in, in many ways they really are. In the second section, Jesus is praying God the Father and praise for thanksgiving that the message that he and John has had has been kept from the wise and from the intelligent. Uh, at 8 o'clock, I said, I know there were a number of PhDs there, and I said, this doesn't mean that you didn't get it. <laughs> it. We really have to put that in context because it is not about uh, people who are generally intelligent or generally well educated. But rather, it was about those in power and authority. And it was clear that the message that Jesus was bringing could not be received by them. Over and over again, the scribes and the Pharisees rejected that message. They challenged it again and again. And perhaps part of it was because of this sort of uh, radical, extraordinary inclusion that Jesus was involved in. Because over and over, we see Jesus' ministry being the ministry of reaching out to those who have been made invisible in the culture in which Jesus lived. He reached out to those who, were, who needed healing and had been outcast by their family and by their community. He touched people who should not have been touched. He ate with people who should not have eaten with. And he loved people who nobody else loved. So Jesus, over and over again, was opening his arms to those who were invisible. As I was uh, thinking about this this morning, I, I thought, I wonder who in my life is invisible to me. And I, as we think about that, you know, there are many possibilities. It could be those who are suffering from some sort of physical disability. We just don't see them. Or those who are aging, we just don't see them. Or those who are children, who are among us as children, we just don't see them. It's very easy for people to fall through cracks as an invisible person. And Jesus calls us, I believe, to see those people, and more than just see them, but to touch them, to love them, to eat and drink with them, 
see those that others don't see. Well, the final section is the one which uh, most of us, especially preachers, are drawn to because it's the part that we think can preach the best. It's often the section we turn to when uh, difficult times strike our lives. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens. I will give you rest. What we sometimes miss is that those words are immediately followed by a call to discipleship. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and let me you. The image, of course, is the image of uh, two beasts of burden that have a yoke over their necks. And the two of them can obviously pull the load much more easily than one can pull the load. Well, the load that the people have been carrying in Jesus' time was that very heavy load of the law. There were like 613 laws that had been derived from the Torah. And then in addition to that, there were various rabbinical laws have been added on. And then when you think about it, you know that uh, you've heard stories about how they had to try to discern how to apply the law. So the application of the law became sort of another law. I sometimes thought that I would be uh, very comfortable in that kind of society because I'm very comfortable in checklists. <laughs> I spent most of my life in checklists. I even use a checklist when I pack my bag and go somewhere. This is sort of check, checklist living. It's going down the checklist. So we, when I was in the Air Force, we used to have what we call decision logic tables. And you could go down the side and find what it was here, and you look across what was at the top, and where they meet, there's the answer. And it's sort of that kind of way of living. Finding the answer, because there must be an answer. But I think what Jesus was calling those people to, and what he's calling us to, is a different kind of, a different way of living the law. And a way that lifts the burden. So it's not the burden of trying to find the exact right answer. But rather, it is a way of living life as a Christian that brings life. It's a way of living life as a Christian that finds mercy, finds justice. It's a way of living life that doesn't cast off those that are outcasts, but rather draws them in. And it's a way of life that's really more challenging, because we have to make decisions day in and day out of the right way to act, the right thing to do, because we can't just go to a checklist and find the answer. Many times when uh, I am uh, at weddings, one of the things that I sometimes uh, include is a reflection on what uh, builds a strong marriage. And one of the things I comment about is the fact that uh, married life, I think, is the strength of it is built in those very small day-to-day -day things that we do that are, that are kindnesses or are bits of gentleness that we offer the other person, expressions of love that are expressed in, in sort of very ordinary ways. It's in the most ordinary times in our life that we build the love and relationship that's important in marriage. And I think the same can be said in Christian discipleship. I believe that it is in the ordinary things of life that we live our lives as Christians. It's not in those grand decisions that are so difficult that we think, oh, I can never get it right. 
Rather, it's in the everyday decisions that we make about our relationships, about uh, being at work with other people, being in school, and dealing with all the struggles that occur there, and being in family and in relationships. All of that is what makes up Christian disciples, what makes up the life of a Christian. And I think it's there that we learn how to live as Christians. Well, I, this passage, I think, uh, for me at least, uh, brought up many of the things that I was thinking about as I thought about all those weddings that I've been involved in, about the relationship between the marital commitment and the commitment we make as Christians in this life. We are all called to be disciples, not just uh, the professional ones that are at college, but all of us, all of you, are called to be disciples. And sometimes that, that feels like it's just a too big a task. How could we ever be someone like that? One of the wonderful things that we heard this morning was that passage from Romans where Paul talks about the difficulty he has in living the Christian life. And it's, it's sort of hard to listen to because Paul writes in a somewhat convoluted way sentences kind of roll back over each other all the time. So sometime today, read that passage and think about it. Here is Paul, the one who had been called by Jesus to be an apostle. And Paul is struggling with all the things that he struggled with. He's struggling with his imperfection. He's struggling with the failures in his life, doing what he knows he should not do, doing the things he does not want to do, not doing the things that he knows he should do. How many times have I felt that in my own life? But the thing that we need to remember is that Christ is still with us. And I think that's a little bit how it's like the married life. I have seen these many couples stand before me. They're just about to exchange their vows. I think, wait, you know what you're doing. serious about this? Of course they are. They know, they know, deep down, every one of them, that this is forever for them. And part of it is because of the love that they have for each other that binds them together. But the thing that's so wonderful is that as they live out their life, they know they're imperfect. And they know that this one that they love is imperfect as well. And there will be times when they will disappoint one another. But they know that the love that they have for each other will keep them together, will sustain them, and will lift the burden. And I believe in this Christian life, we, like Paul, will really do some things that we wish we hadn't done. Say things we wish we hadn't said. But always, always, Christ is at our side. This morning, uh, we have the privilege of baptizing Wesley. And it's that too, it's just such a wonderful moment in the life of the community. And uh, at some point, toward the end of this baptism, we will say that Wesley is sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. 
can't think of a, a more perfect image for what all of us are called into. But this life in Christ, where the Holy Spirit is with us, to be with us through all of our lives, through the difficult times and through the good times. And Christ is with us because we are sealed as His forever. And for that, we give God thanks.
Deliver him, O Lord, from the way of sin and death.
delighted to let you know that uh, Nick Morris Clement has been called to be the rector at Needham, Christchurch Needham. Uh, I think he's starting in September. If you know people at Christchurch, don't be in touch with them yet because the word might not be fully out. But Nick told me that a letter had gone out to his congregation in uh, Linfield. So uh, the word should be out very soon. But a wonderful opportunity for Nick. And for his family as well. Very good parish. Uh, the other thing is that um, I was handed a note by Mary Thorpe this morning asking our prayers for the repose of the soul of Steve Tiger, uh, the loved husband of Del Thornback. Uh, he uh, sadly drowned in the pool in which he had been baptized. Uh, so please keep him in your prayers. And also, uh, he's very close friends with Mary Thorpe. Mary, your prayers all were close to that family. And certainly God as well. There will be healing prayer
supper, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for all for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ is God. Christ is
the name of this congregation.